Well, welcome to the Center for Ancient Christian Studies podcast. We're your hosts, Coleman Ford and Sean Wilhite. Uh, today we're joined by Trey Moss, a junior fellow and editor at the Center for Ancient Christian Studies. And our guest today is Dr. Jarvis Williams. Uh, Dr. Williams is an associate professor of New Testament interpretation and the book review editor for the Southern Baptist Theological Journal at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He also serves on, on the board of reference for the Center for Ancient Christian Studies as well. Dr. Williams has contributed to many journals and regularly contributes to scholarly societies. Uh, he is the author of numerous books and articles, including Maccabean Martyr Tradition and Paul's Theology of Atonement. Did Martyr Theology Shape Paul's Conception of Jesus' Death? Uh, also, One New Man, The Cross and Racial Reconciliation in Pauline Theology, as well as For Whom Did Christ Die? The Extent of the Atonement in Paul's Theology. He's also contributed a chapter entitled Martyr Theology and Hellenistic Judaism and Paul's Conception of Jesus' Death in Romans 3, 21-26. And you can find that in Christian Origins and Hellenistic Judaism, Social and Literary Context for the New Testament on Brill. Uh, and his most recent work, which we'll talk about uh, just momentarily, is Christ Died for Our Sins, Representation and Substitution in Romans and Their Jewish Martyrological Background. As well as uh, working, uh, completing those projects, he's also working on uh, some upcoming uh, monographs, one on ethno-racial identity for Crossway, also a monograph on Galatians 3.13 for TNT, and also a Galatians commentary on Wiffenstock. You know, Dr. Williams, it's good to be with you today. Thank you. It's good, good to be here. Yeah, so if we can, we'd just love to hear just a little bit of a biographical journey. Um, what really led you into Pauline theology and Jewish backgrounds uh, in general, as well as a, a slew of other topics within ancient Christianity, whether it's personal journey, books that you've read, um, individuals that you've met along the way, or even uh, just studying with the, your doctor, doctor, uh, Dr. Thomas Schreiner. So just love to hear kind of you expand yeah, That's that. a great question. Well, my journey into Pauline theology really goes back for me to my conversion. I, I wasn't raised in a Christian family. I heard the gospel growing up in a small Bible Belt community, but never responded to it. And then by means of a devastating tragedy in my little eastern Kentucky town, a dear friend of mine in 1996 named Mary Catherine Prater died in a tragic car accident. And through that tragedy, the Lord brought me to faith in Christ. And a year or so after that, uh, after I became a member of a local church in town there, uh, a year or so after that, I started sensing the call into the ministry. I didn't know what that meant, what that looked like, but my pastor helped me think through that. And so I thought I would go into pastoral ministry, went off to seminary, pursued theological education. And while I was in seminary, began to fall in love with uh, biblical languages, uh, biblical exegesis, uh, particularly fell in love with Paul. Um, for me, of course, Jesus is the centerpiece of our faith and of the New Testament, but Paul is uh, the one who outlines a lot of these theological doctrines of the faith that we hold near and dear. So as an MDiv student, roughly around 2001, 2002, began to encounter Paul for the first time in the Greek text uh, by means of Greek exegesis classes. And the most influential person in my thinking uh, with regard to Pauline theology is by far my doctor father, Tom Schreiner, and took a class with him on Romans as a Greek exegesis, began to learn some of those things that are central to Pauline theology, like New Perspective, back in those days, New Perspective uh, on Paul, and Law Gospel issues, Justification issues, Sociology, and then took Dr. Mark Seifried um, for Galatians, and those issues came up again. And I thought um, 
even then I would be a pastor, but I went into a THM program thinking, let me get another year under my belt to, to develop exegetical skills and study Pauline theology more precisely. And while I was in my THM program, I really began to, to think for the first time seriously that perhaps the Lord's calling me to an academic ministry and was convinced by that time, 2004 roughly, that I wanted to devote my scholarship primarily to Pauline theology and Pauline soteriology. And as far as books that yeah. have influenced my thinking, I mean, again, my my supervisor, Tom Schreiner, has probably shaped my understanding of Paul more than anybody in terms of exegetically. Uh, but regarding other influences, Martin Hingle in terms of mm. early Christian origins have influenced me, uh, other other scholars as well. I, I mean, I don't, I don't agree with Tom Wright on everything, but Tom Wright has helped me understand Paul's Greco-Roman world quite a bit. Um, other scholars, Mike Burge, very influential. Um, I spent a lot of time reading also books that are written by scholars who are experts in Judaism, Yen Van Hinton, who teaches at the University of Amsterdam, is a is a tremendous influence on my thinking in terms of two and four Maccabees and how how two and four Maccabees actually shine a ray of light into mm. Paul's conception of Jesus' death and mm. the list just goes on and on and on mm. for me. Mm. Mm. That's great. That's great. What about uh, talk to us a little bit about your dissertation process. How did that like did you end up wanting to write in Jewish backgrounds or mm. Your PhD experience. What was that journey like? That's great. When my my interest into um, my dissertation topic and my my interest in early Judaism uh, was twofold. Number one, literally the day I got accepted into the PhD program, I went to Tom Schreiner. I knew I wanted to study with him and focus on Paul. And I asked him what were some issues at the time that were cutting edge issues in New Testament studies that he thought needed to be dealt with. And he listed off to me around four or five issues. And one of those issues pertained to Paul, um, the death of Jesus, and whether or not he understood Jesus' death as a, um, whether or not modern theology shaped his understanding of Jesus' death, particularly looking at Romans 3.25. And I thought what better way to spend three, four, years of my life as a doctoral student than thinking about Paul and the, his understanding of the death of Jesus. So that following semester, after Schreiner and I had that conversation, I took a, a Roman seminar, PhD seminar with him on Romans and investigated that question. What was the background behind Paul's understanding of Jesus' death in Romans 3.25? And of course in that text, Helosterion is the big debated issue mm -hmm. in 3.25, but there, there are many debated issues, but that's a pretty big one. But in addition to that, that same semester I was accepted to the THM program, uh, my colleague, Dr. Brian Vickers, mm. led a colloquium on Jewish backgrounds. Mm. And that, for me, was really the first time, 2004, was the first time I really began to engage Jewish literature. And, and so he made us read, not everything in Two Temple Judaism, but a lot of the literature that is important for New Testament studies. And so I wrote a paper on Two and Four Maccabees and whether or not the, the, the martyrs' deaths in those texts were an atoning sacrifice for Israel. Mm -hmm. So for me, it just worked out perfectly mm -hmm. providentially. I had right. this course as a THM mm -hmm. student on, uh, on backgrounds in which I wrote a, a paper on Two and Four Maccabees. And then following that semester, <coughs> I had a course on Romans with Schreiner in which I was able to integrate my work from the previous semester into that paper and as I got into the dissertation topic I thought yes this is where I want to spend the bulk of my life thinking namely what is the background in front of which we should read Paul's understanding of soteriology and particularly the death of Jesus. 
So that might be a good transition now to your current work, Christ Died for Our Sins, uh, just came out a couple weeks ago. Um, this is in some ways a refinement and a reworking of your doctoral dissertation. Could you maybe sp speak to how that came about? Yes. Um, with any doctoral thesis, even if it's published, I think hindsight allows you to see there's some things you wish you would have done differently. For me, I think my doctoral thesis was uh, too broad at the end of the day. Namely, I dealt with too many Pauline texts. So although my, the my, my topic is very narrow, namely the background, the monological background behind Paul in my doctoral thesis, uh, reflecting on that after it was published and reading some reviews on that, uh, I realized that I could have been a bit more narrow. So one of the things I wanted to do, especially after reading Yen Van Hitten's review of the book in RBL, he was very positive, very gracious in his review and, and, and liked the book, but he pointed out some weaknesses that made me realize what I need to do is, is write a monograph in which I argue a modest thesis about Paul's view of Jesus' death and about the background influences behind that, and in which I also argue that this is not the only option but here is an option uh, for Paul, namely substitution and representation, as well as morological, uh, a morological reading of Paul. And, and, and thirdly, I wanted to focus only on Romans, because for me, Romans is, I think, the most important Pauline book. Uh, of course, the whole Bible is important if you are a Christian, but, but Paul, perhaps in Romans, really has given us a, a letter that has given the church many of its doctrines. Of course, Galatians is important, is important as well. So I wanted to enter into a discussion about, about the death of Jesus and, and the background behind Paul's understanding of that by being more narrowly precise, uh, more than I was in my doctoral thesis. So could you maybe flesh that out for us? What is Paul's background to the death of Christ in Romans? Yes, I, I think it's complex. And I think, and I'm careful in the, in the recent monograph to say that Paul's, the issue is not what is the background for Paul. It's, for me, it's what is a background for Paul. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that, that Paul's understanding of Jesus' death is both representation and substitution, and a background in front of which we should read Paul is Jewish martyrological. That does not dismiss the reality that that Isaiah 53 and Levitical cultic texts, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, influence Paul. Certainly they influence Paul. But one of the things I'm trying to push against is, is sort of this naive approach to Paul that suggests there's a straight line from Sinai mm -hmm. to the letter to the Romans without, mm -hmm. inter, without any intervening history. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, I'm not arguing that every time Paul reflects upon the death of Jesus, he is giving us a Jewish morological reflection. But what I am suggesting is, is that when you compare what Paul says about the death of Jesus and some of the concepts he uses and some of the vocabulary he uses, there seems to be a morological reading of texts like Leviticus 16, texts like Isaiah 53 in Paul. So then for me, it is the reality of representation and substitution in Paul and their Jewish morological background as a background for Paul, not the only background. And that's the place where I'm being a bit more careful than I was in my dissertation. I use the word the background too much, I think, in the dissertation, whereas I've I flexed on that language in this book. I'm more, more careful to say this is a background. Uh. In the second chapter of your book, when you talk about the Levitical cultic context and you work through tons of texts in Leviticus, and then in the third chapter, you move to um, martyr texts in the Pseudepigrapha and Apocrypha, could you maybe 
explain how those texts are picking up on cultic themes and, and why that is important for Paul? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, first of all, let me say that I don't think Paul needs modern theology to present Jesus' death as a representation or as a substitution. I just want to make that clear because some critics will say that I'm arguing he needs this to make that argument. I'm not arguing that. I'm arguing that he uses that to make the argument. And, and when you look at the, the Levitical cult sacrifices and you compare that, and, and, and uh, Leviticus 16 particularly, you compare that with texts like 2 and 4 Maccabees, LXX, Daniel 3, you see these Jews appropriating this cultic language to their contextualized experience in exile as they suffer on behalf of Israel without the access to a, a temple cult that provides a means by which they can offer atonement for their sins. And so what they're doing, it seems to me, is, is they're reappropriating these traditional Levitical cultic texts to their situation to be a means by which God brings about his salvation to his people. And it seems to me when you read Paul, that Paul is making a similar argument because he's using a, an argument that suggests a Jewish Torah observant man. Now, of course, the God-man, but a Jewish man, nevertheless, has died on the cross to deliver sinners from their sins and to appease God from his wrath. So what you find in the Levitical cultic sacrifices is you have animals. And then when you get to Leviticus 16, you have two different rituals. You have the scapegoat ritual, and then you have the, you have the sacrificial ritual and the scapegoat ritual. These two different rituals, I would argue, in the narrative of Leviticus 16 are functioning in a substitutionary way, but they are animals. And we also know that ultimately this sacrifice in Leviticus 16 does not deal with the sin problem unless the sacrifice is performed in the appropriate way. Mm -hmm. so, so what you then find in 2 and 4 Maccabees is, it seems to me, a recognition that the cult doesn't work because we are in our sin and the cult's not at our access anymore because we're in exile or because in 2 and 4 Maccabees, Antiochus has come in and forbade us from offering have forbidden us from offering these sacrifices. So they offered up themselves to God as Torah observant Jews to be a means by which God brought about salvation. So then Paul says, here is, I think, an idea that already has within it the notion that a Jew dies for sinners. And he appropriates that idea that uses cultic atoning sacrificial language to Jesus, the God-man, who died a superior death to these, to these Jews and to and for Maccabees, and certainly to those animals, for Jews and Gentiles. And so then for me, when Paul reappropriates the tradition, he's reconstructing it. It's not a direct one-to-one -one correlation. It is an appropriation, but yet a reconstruction for Paul to make his theological argument. Because for the Jews and 2 and 4 Maccabees, it's Torah-observant Jews dying for non-Torah-observant Jews. For Paul, it's a Torah-observant Jew dying for non-Torah-observant Jews and Gentiles. So what he does is he universalizes those, those texts. And so then for me, that strongly supports the argument, if I'm right, that Paul's presentation of Jesus' death as an atoning sacrifice, as a substitution, as a representation, is staunchly Jewish, not, cult, not, not pagan, not fundamentally Greco-Roman. Because once these Jews take these Greco-Roman ideas, they become Jewish in how they function. Once Paul takes these ideas and he reappropriates them to the death of Jesus, he's making a Jewish argument, but he's universalizing that argument beyond Jewish identity. I think that's pretty important. 
So maybe moving towards big picture, how has this specific project helped you think about, even though it's, it's very narrow in scope, help you think about early Christianity and how does a project like this inform modern readers of the New Testament about early Christian origins? Yeah, good, good questions. How, how has this project helped me think about early Christianity? Well, one thing it forces you to do is it makes you, as best as we can, try to think about first century Christianity by using their categories. I think even our title, Christian, has some political baggage to it, right? We have a history of what Christian, that word, how it's functioned in our Christian context. So one of the things that working in early Christian literature helps us do is help us to think in the categories of these early Christians, and those categories were Jewish. Uh, there wasn't any Christianity until Jesus came, right? And, and so it, it helps us to understand the Jewish and the Greco-Roman context in front of which to read the early Christian movement. How does it help us, I think you said, how does it help us then understand the New Testament? Um, I think, I think one, one thing that we can say is, is that if we want to understand, I want to be careful here, if we want to understand the New Testament better, we can't simply begin with the question, how does the text speak to me today in the 21st century? For Christians, particularly who read that text, this is a challenge because we go to the Bible wanting God to give us a word today. And that's a great thing. But one of the things we must do is, is ask ourselves a couple of questions. Number one, what did this text mean do, how did it function in its ancient context? And then secondly, from that, how then can we apply this to the modern social experience? So let's just take the modern day discussion of race, for example. I actually think that how we understand race as a modern social construct is radically different from what's happening in early Christianity. I think race well, I think race is complicated in both contexts, but I think race was particularly a big category in the ancient world that was not based on scientific racism as it was in our modern social construct. Even though you do have some similarities in the ancient world with how they did stereotype people based on physical characteristics. But the point would be they didn't do that based on scientific racism. And so what we often do is, is we want to make the argument for racial reconciliation or whatever without dealing with what race is in our social construct and how that differs from what we find in the ancient mm -hmm. world. So in my view, the race issue is a sociological issue. Mm -hmm. And when I read ancient texts, I'm reinforced that this is by the fact that this is right. For, for Paul, for example, there's a massive Jew-Gentile issue. And this is a race issue. It's not race as we, modern, as we conceive it in the modern social construct, but it is nevertheless a, a, an ethno-racial issue. And so getting into the world of the New Testament by means of, of reading these primary texts allows us to understand exactly what the Bible was speaking to and how then can we, can we appropriately apply the text to real modern day problems. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good segue. I mean, you know, we want to talk more about this issue of race, racial reconciliation. And we think about, <clears throat> obviously, this past year has just been uh, kind of a watershed year, it seems like, for this issue in the culture and in the news. Obviously, we're seeing this, um, you know, from Ferguson to most recently Charleston, McKinney, Texas, <clears throat> and even just racial identity, right, with Rachel Dolezal and, mm -hmm. uh, and how that plays into this whole conversation. So could you expand on what you just said and, and help us as listeners think about <clears throat> why is there a biblical perspective necessary mm. for this question? How can that help culture and society, even non-believers? How can our voice 
help in this issue um, with those who are listening in? Uh, yes, yeah, so thank you for asking that question. I mean, this is a, this is a question that, that weighs on me heavily. As an academic, a Christian academic, I, I want to do serious scholarship on the one hand, but I also want that scholarship, whenever it can, to benefit Christians and churches. And the issue of race is an issue that is very much um, one in which we need the Bible's help on. And I think one reason why we need as, as Christians to get this right is because Christians have a heritage of being on the wrong side of the race issue. Mm -hmm. And we have inherited as Christians a modern social construct of race without asking ourselves how we got it mm -hmm. and, wh and why we got it. So, so then when we talk about as Christians what the gospel is, we usually do not speak of it as a racial reconciliation message because we separate that from social issues. So that, for example, the typical, I think, Protestant Christian response to, to the whole race problem has been uh, that this is a social issue that doesn't speak to, that the gospel doesn't speak to. But what I want to say is that is not actually what ancient texts support. Ancient texts support that the race issue, though defined differently in antiquity, from modernity has has roots in Judaism, has roots in uh, early Christianity. So, for example, the idea that a Jewish man died and resurrected from the dead for Jews and Gentiles, that is a an ethno-racial reality. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians argues that the mystery of the gospel is, in fact, the unification of all things and all people in Jesus Christ. And Paul says in 3.8 that he announced this as the inexpressible riches of Christ. He announced this as good news. Juan Galizos, the verb uses there. And so it seems to me then that when Paul talks about gospel, he's also having a racial discussion. Mm. Because Jesus has come to bring about this unification of Jew and Gentile that exists because of sin, yes, but also that exists because of law that alienates people. So then what happens in our modern social construct is, is that we say because the modern social construct of race is not exactly the same as the ancient social construct of race, the gospel therefore does not speak to race issues. And I want to say, back up. We need to do two things. Number one, define, well, three things. Define gospel, define race in antiquity, and define race in modernity, and then let's draw some conclusions from those definitions that are actually rooting in what the Bible, I think, actually says about these problems. So, so in my view, I think that this issue of, of race, racial reconciliation, it is an issue that Jesus came to die for that Paul spent his life preaching. No, it wasn't a skin color issue, but it was still a, a, an issue regarding division of, of people. And so for me, race in antiquity is a word that represents otherness. So then if we make the word not a word that limits itself to a fixed biological reality or perception of reality, if we say no, the word race is actually bigger than that, that I think we're able to see then the Bible mm. does speak to the racial divide. Mm. The racial divide, certainly it's not, it, it, it's not limited to the black-white divide, but it includes it. And I think how Paul is operating in terms of his mission 
and his his preaching speaks to the fact that the gospel is bringing about the unification of races. Every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Revelation talks about those things. So this is a massive issue for Christianity. I mean, we have again, we have a history of being on the wrong side of the race issue. And 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 also, I think when we read the New Testament, that we see that race is not just white versus black. It's 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 much bigger than that. Now, in our context, recently, we are made aware of the fact that there are enduring effects of white supremacy in this country. I mean, the Charleston situation is making that abundantly clear. And, and that situation represents the larger problem to which the gospel speaks, namely sin, fall, redemption, unification of all things in Christ. And, and I'm just convinced that, that, that as, as scholars of early Christianity, we have the resources at our fingertips to help people in the modern social context understand this better. A recent book, in fact, that I'm reading, uh, it's not too recent, it's about 10 years old, but Benjamin Isaacs is a classical scholar. He's not a Christian, he's a classical scholar. And he uh, wrote a book called The uh, Invention of Racism in Classical Antiquity. Hmm. Four or five hundred pages. He is going through text after text after text in the ancient world showing how proto-racism was there. Hmm. And in fact, how proto-racism was not exactly the same as racism in modernity. But racism in modernity borrowed from some of the ideas in proto-racism. Hmm. And we need to reckon with that as we're talking about racial reconciliation today. Hope I didn't go too long, but that's uh, that's helpful. Yeah. That's real helpful. No, and and maybe maybe offer how does this topic, how should this topic infiltrate maybe the classroom, mm-hmm. uh, maybe uh, maybe scholarship and and their works that they produce, or maybe even the pulpit, maybe speak to some of those things. How how can this topic? Um, be introduced to these kind yeah. of different different facets. That's a great question, Sean. I, in my view, I I think one I, I I think one of the problems that that many in our American context uh, that we have is that we think silence about the race issue makes it better. I think silence about race reinforces our ignorance and our racism. And so one of the things that I think academic institutions need to be better at is is intentionally incorporating courses in the curriculum that deal with this issue. We have courses in curriculum that talk about issues related to uh, Baptist history or church history. Well, those are great times to talk about how race has, has affected uh, Baptist history or church history. We have courses that focus on uh, Greek exegesis of Galatians. I teach that course, Greek exegesis of Ephesians, and I spend a lot of time talking about the construction of racial identity. So one way we can, as, as academics who are going to be teaching in the academy, is, is making sure we are integrating these kinds of issues that are very much important today into our curriculum, having classes on this stuff, having classes on what is race. And furthermore, I think we, as academics, and I'll speak to the church in a moment, as academics, we also need to make sure we are reading people who represent different voices. Mm-hmm. I think one of the greatest uh, expressions of racism in the academy is this intellectual racism, mm-hmm. where it seems as though that the only ones who have made contributions are those who are Anglo or mm-hmm. Euro. Mm-hmm. 
And I want to say, well, Africa's done some pretty good stuff, too. Uh, I mean, you have a patristic scholar here sitting with me at the table, and he can mention some, some ancient African scholars who have been helpful in the history of the church. And it's helpful for us not only to, to understand that folks in the ancient church who have not been uh, European or, or Anglo have made impacts, but also reading people in the modern context who have made contributions, reading people who might not even agree with us theologically, reading books that make us think about race and make us think, particularly if you're doing biblical studies, how race has in fact shaped how we read text. So for example, I teach hermeneutics here at Southern, and when I teach it during the regular semester, one of the things I make my students do is they read black liberation theology, Asian feminist theology. They read people on, uh, who have a gay and lesbian hermeneutic to understand what they think. Now, I don't advocate those views as my own, but my view is they need to recognize that there are people who read the Bible differently from the way they have, and they need to recognize that everybody has a particular ethnic reading of a text, not just black people. Mm. And everybody reads the Bible through an ethnic lens. Mm. And so hermeneutics is a great place to introduce mm -hmm. that discussion as well. Um, regarding the church, I think, I think pastors and church leaders need to be intentional about dealing with the issue of race, issues of justice, when they come up in the biblical text and recognize that the Bible has a lot to say about justice, a lot to say about love, a lot to say about racial reconciliation, and to be willing to go there with their people when the text pushes them there. Um, I think what's unhelpful is when people make these well-intentioned, uh, I'll just say it, nonsensical statements like race does not matter. Mm. Well, you tell those families mm. in Charleston, South Carolina that race doesn't matter. No, race does matter. And what we need to work through as Christians and churches is, is to recognize that the Christian gospel never promises to erase race. It promises to transform it. So that what we do then is we recognize that when we preach and when we teach, we've got to deal with these issues as they're dealt with in the ancient text. And then we need to apply these texts responsibly. And then also in the church, we need to be intentional to listen to marginalized voices who suffer legitimate racial injustices. I'd be the first to say that there are many people out there who do wrongly use race as a means by which to profit off the backs of people who suffer legitimate racial injustices. That's a reality. Mm -hmm. But that does not therefore exclude the fact that there are real racist and real systemic problems that we face in our culture. And so what we need to do is, as pastors, as Christians and churches, as leaders and churches, is to actually sit around tables with people in our churches, in our communities, mm -hmm. who suffer marginalization and learn from them and and I don't think I'm an evangelical so I can pe uh, pick on this I don't think evangelicals listen very well mm. we're great about talking to people we're, we're great at saying this is bad but we're not good at listening to people who suffer legitimately from racial injustices they genuinely have racial injustice in their experience and I think as Christians that that a church can take a step forward by means of not only preaching, but acting. And part of that acting is listening mm -hmm. to what people are saying in their churches. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, that's great. That's great. If we can, maybe we're just going to turn a sharp corner and talk about something a little bit totally different um, and, and talk about maybe the future of 
the discipline that we're talking about just of ancient Christianity, where it's Jewish studies, New Testament background, or even just maybe going into foregrounds of, of, of patristic and late antique. But what are what are works that you want to see written that would help you kind of answer some more questions that maybe you don't have the time mm. to, to chase down? Or let's say in the next 20 years, what is, you know, what's the book that you want to know uh, that you spent time writing and being able to, th- to yeah. think long about? It's good. Well, let me just say, mention a few books that um, I think that would be helpful to me in my work. Handbooks uh, that, that actually have a compilation of scholars who, who are specialists, who are contributing to different aspects of ancient Christian studies. A recent handbook was uh, TNT Clark handbook on social identity theory. I think Trey is, has finished reading that, and I'm working through that now. That's a handbook that consists of scholars who are experts in social identity theory. Uh, they're experts also in the Jewish background literature, and they're writing on every book of the New Testament, look, reading it through a social identity lens to try to understand what the text is saying based on these social um, scientific categories. I think books like that, uh, that put together a, a high-powered group of scholars who are specialists to help us think through issues regarding patristic literature or whatever is helpful, uh, dictionaries that that are put together on, on very specific issues. I think I'd like to see more of those. Um, I don't know, a recent dictionary, 2009 or 10 or so, I think, the early dictionary, or the Dictionary of Early Judaism by Erdman's. It's a great, massive resource where you have experts in Judaism, Jew, I mean, it's a very diverse, collective group of people, Jewish scholars who are specialists in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, scholars who are specialists on Paul, putting their skills together to put, produce a work that's helpful to scholars. So more handbooks and dictionaries, dictionaries written by specialists, I think, on, on early Christian literature would be helpful for me. Uh, also, you know, books that, that are constantly trying to set the New Testament text in its first century context, whether that is its Greco-Roman context or its early Christian context, uh, patristic context, those are helpful as well. Um, this is an area in which I'm weak, I must confess, is patristics. I'm, I'm increasingly becoming aware of the fact that I need to know the fathers a, a bit better to understand how early Christians read text. And so text, so books that are focused on um, history of interpretation and that actually spends time not talking about how moderns only talked about the Bible, mm-hmm. but spend time actually digging into the fathers and, and talking about their reading of text are, are helpful as well. Uh, and for me personally, I mean, books that, that really just drive me that, that I would love to see uh, more books of, books that are nearly focused on how Paul, Paul uses a certain for, uh, content, uh, ver- verse uh, and how that verse was used in Judaism, uh, books like that, books that focus on Pauline concepts that are not novel to Paul, but rather they are reconstructed by Paul, books that focus on that, and, and books that show that actually Christianity, although it, in many ways it is, it, it's, it's new, it's not entirely created out of a vacuum. It's not a, a they're, they're not, there are ideas within the early Christian movement that were already there within Judaism. Even the idea of a suffering Messiah was there. And so books that help us get into that world, I think, are welcome from my perspective as a, as a New Testament scholar who wants to read the New Testament always through the lens of first century Christianity, or first early Judaism. And in terms of, I think you asked maybe a dissertation topic or something. Or, Did you ask me that? Or, yeah, sure. Or well, you, you can talk about that. I, was, I said maybe, you know, forecast the next 20 years. What is kind of the work? Oh, for me? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, well you know, currently I have 
um, contracts already for five books. And one of those books is a commentary on Galatians. And uh, it's, for, it's, for, it's, not a, it's not a highly technical commentary. It's particularly for pastors, but it's a commentary series that actually places the book of Galatians in its ancient context. And so in that book, I'll be dealing with issues related to race and racial identity and antiquity. I'll also be dealing with issues related to uh, gospel. What did Paul mean by that as opposed to what we typically mean by that? Um, I'm writing a book on the construction of racial identity now. Um, I'm also writing some stuff with my colleagues at SBL. Uh, I probably shouldn't say the title of the book because it's not out yet, but we have a contract already and it focuses on uh, issues related to cult and things of that nature. Uh, but also for me, I think the next 20 years of my life, I want to spend more time thinking about uh, soteriology and Paul through the, through the lens of, of early Judaism and then also connecting that reality to race, producing more works that do that. And I've made a personal commitment that for, for every technical monograph or two that I write, I want to also crank out something that's more popular for, for Christians. Because I don't think Christian scholars should only write for Christian scholars. Mm-hmm. We should also try to write, I'm sorry, I don't think Christian scholars should only write for scholars, uh, period, regardless of whether those scholars are Christian or not. But I think we should also, as Christian scholars, write for the church mm-hmm. whenever we can. Mm-hmm. And so trying to put more things in the hands of people that uh, help them understand the Bible rightly is what I want to do. And also, for me, a big picture dream is I really would love to write a, a Pauline theology. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm ready to do that now. I've only been teaching approximately seven years, and I only graduated in 2007 with my PhD, so I'm a very young scholar still. But I'd like to write a Pauline theology. Uh, but before I get there, I want to write a Pauline theology of atonement. And so the, the next big project I hope to put forward uh, is, a, is a Pauline theology of atonement, just tracing every single atonement concept in Paul, uh, focusing both on contested and uncontested Pauline letters, and then setting that in his mm-hmm. Jewish context. Mm-hmm. And, and then as well, you know, I'd like to, uh, to write eventually a, a, a Pauline theology that tries to contribute something new, which will be difficult because mm-hmm. everybody has said something about Paul, it seems, mm-hmm. but hopefully a, a way of reading Paul that might be a fresh way of reading him. Mm-hmm. And for me, it seems to me that reading Paul through the lens of racial identity might be a helpful mm-hmm. way to read him. Mm-hmm. Well, that's helpful. And a similar question, I think, that uh, would really uh, encourage our listeners. And a, and a question we'd like to ask a lot is just, uh, based on your experience, if you had two minutes to sit down with uh, someone who's looking to, at PhD studies or is just starting PhD studies, uh, up-and-coming scholars and students uh, interested in this field, what would you want to say to them? What, what were some things you'd want to encourage them with? Maybe some um, warnings you'd want to give them, uh, things yes. they should think about? Very good, yes. The first thing I would say is, be an academic word, immerse yourselves into primary text. Absolutely, when you are doing a PhD, you've got to know secondary literature. You, you have to know what people are saying about things. But you can't make a novel contribution to a field unless you know what the texts actually say yourself. And of course, you've got to know what people have said to make a contribution. But it's much more impressive to quote the horse as opposed to uh, the person who said something about the horse. So first thing is immerse yourselves into primary text. So if, that, if you are a New Testament 
a New Testament PhD student, you want to immerse yourself into the Greek and Hebrew Bible. You want to immerse yourself into Greco-Roman and Jewish literature. You want to immerse yourself into Philo, Josephus, immerse yourself into Strabo, uh, all these other ancient texts. You want to immerse yourself into Patrist, immerse yourself into these texts. Uh, the second thing I say is, is, a, is a practical word, is take care of yourselves. Uh, if you want to do a PhD, PhD was for me the, the most enjoyable time, of my, enjoyable, enjoyable time of my life, but it was also the most physically demanding and challenging. And your PhD will not do anyone any good if you're dead. Mm -hmm. So when you do a PhD, take care of your, yourself, take care of your soul as well as your body. And then the final thing I'd say is, again, another practical word is, particularly to Christians who want to do PhDs, stay connected to the local church. Because even if you're doing a PhD in the Bible, PhD is some of the most soul-killing stuff you'll ever do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I spend most of my time reading people that radically disagree with me mm -hmm. because of my interest. And, and it's quite discouraging sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, and there's always this struggle intellectually with me is are these people really right and mm -hmm. have I been misled? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that keeps Christian scholars, I think, in the faith, something that God uses is is the church of Jesus where the gospel's preached and the saints sing and pray and encourage each other. So stay involved in the life of the local church that believes the gospel. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Thank you so much, Dr. Williams. And uh, yeah, we just thank you for your time. I mean, this has been encouraging to me. I hope it's been encouraging mm -hmm. to listeners who are tuning in for the podcast. And uh, ultimately, uh, we look forward to some of those projects, hopefully sooner than later, but uh, I know you got a lot on your plate right now. So we look forward to reviewing them in the journal, our Fides and Humilitas, Journal of the Center for Ancient Christian Studies. Uh, and either way, we uh, thank you for your service to the church, to the academy, uh, and to us as a center. And uh, for those tuning in, uh, we hope that you'll uh, pick up uh, Christ Died for Our Sins on uh, Pickwick and some of the other texts that we've mentioned from Dr. Jarvis Williams. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you for your service and thank you for your time. Thank you.